In the thin warmth of the twelfth day, Lee stood in the abandoned campsite with the dunes at her back and looked out at an immense low flatness, veined pink and white, a glare off the salt back and out as far as she could see. The horizon was low and the sky filled all the space with clouds. A long way north there was smoke. The cold and the rest had eased her ankle and she could walk a little with the stick. She started looking for proof. The campsite wasn't enough. How many big road camps had she passed along the highway? But there were other things. Shallow toilet holes and uncovered shit too close to camp. The distance a kid would be willing to walk away alone in the dark. And then, a little way out on the salt, she found the remains of someone else's still, half full of parched-looking plant matter. Lee got down on her knees and laid her hands flat on either side of it. She had taught Maddie how to do this on the road to Valiant, made her practice over and over in the dead resting hours. Even though Maddie complained that she was hot and sick of digging, that they wouldn't be around to drink the water. Right there, she made a list of things that would keep Maddie alive. She knew ways to get water, knew how to make a snare out of anything you could bend, how to keep a tent dry and watertight, how to share body heat. She had thermals, some food, some safety in numbers. And she knew how to be among people. Robbie, the kids at school, the kids in mate camp. She was always in the middle of things. It was a choice Lee was making to believe Maddie could survive. She recognised that. But if she stopped believing it, she would never get out of here. So she made a deal with Maddie. Wait for me, she told her. I'm coming. I just have to get myself right. Give me three days. Stay with the group. Remember what you know. Don't get in a truck. Just set up camp and stay there and I'll come. She widened Maddie's still, firmed up the sides, cut down another bottle, covered it with her last sheet of plastic. When that was done, she checked the other two and drank half the distilled water with absolute attention, poured the rest into her water bag and resealed the stills. Then she ate Maddie's melon. It was overripe and astonishingly sweet. Maddie had eaten melon once, her fourth birthday. The Nerevan co-op had bought up a bulk load of bruised and damaged watermelons off a truck heading south. They were selling it frozen by the piece. Frank bought enough to fill a bowl they stuck in the candles. Maddie and Robbie wolfed down the sugary chunks, gnawed the rind, asked for more. They didn't know there were other kinds. The sugar bolted through Lee's blood and left her sick with betrayal. But in a little while she felt hydrated, her brain sharper and her body responsive. There was something missing, something good. And then she realised that she didn't have a headache. For the first time since she got here, she could imagine walking out, the physical sensation of it. But as long as she was stuck here, she would use the time. So that when she caught up with Maddie, she could go back to keeping them both alive. The dunes around where she'd slept revealed the tracks of small night creatures. She unpacked her dump wire and made and set a handful of snares. The stick was no use in the dunes. It was easier to crawl. There had been trees of some kind here that had been ripped down to stumps for firewood. But it wasn't as barren as she'd thought yesterday. There was saltbush, 
and small mesquite plants, prickly acacia, and something that might be rubber vine. Still nothing to burn, but adding plants to her stills would increase the water supply. She'd taught Maddie that. The sun was high now, early afternoon. She needed to figure out a way to get off the ground tonight and keep warm. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Claire Malata about her debut novel, Unsheltered. Claire grew up in Western Australia and now lives in Wellington, New Zealand. Claire, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. Unsheltered is a really remarkable literary debut and has all the attributes one might expect of a much more seasoned author. So I've got to ask you, how long has the idea for Unsheltered been circulating in your mind? And when did the decision come to put your ideas down in the form of a novel? I think accidentally this book ended up probably collecting a lot of things I've been preoccupied with for most of my life. Um, probably like a lot of first books. It's not the first book I've written, but it is the first book I've published. So some years ago, I started thinking about the idea of these kids circling a continent, just these kids walking, and I didn't know who they were or why or what it was about. I was reading a lot about refugees and forced migration. And there's always stories about kids in those stories. And so it was just in the back of my head. And at some point, maybe parenthood had something to do with it, but I started thinking that it was going to be from a mother's point of view and she was going to be looking for one of those kids. And that was the story really. And I didn't want her to be a cliche of motherhood. I, I wanted her to be someone who felt ambivalent about the whole concept and have a quite a complicated relationship to it because I, I wasn't seeing a lot of that. I wasn't seeing a lot of mothers portrayed that way. And that seemed believable to me. And it's, it seemed really believable in the context of the world we live in and the future we have. It seems strange to me that a parent wouldn't feel that way. So it started from that. And then all the other things just, just came in, I suppose. So we've got to talk about two characters, Lee and her daughter, Matty. What's the situation that they're faced with? The situation they're faced with, I guess, is, is one of daily survival. So their home, they've lost their home because of weather, you know, this, this catch-all name for all the things that, all the kind of weather events that might destroy someone's home, and they've experienced a number of them. And fire is what finally finishes them off. They're living in West, their home, their town is destroyed, and they start walking like everyone else in the town and so many other people. And they eventually get to east, which is across the water from west, um, a little bit of a difference from the real Australia. It's one of those differences. And they, they make it to a camp, what I call a mate camp, which is a, a kind of a refugee camp, outside the walls of one of these external border states. So there are these walled areas, precincts, that people want to get into because that's where sheltered people live. They're in a camp on the outside. They're trying to get in through official channels and then the camp is destroyed and 
in the destruction of the camp, the two of them are separated. And from there on, Lee is just following Matty. She's pretty much following rumours. She works out pretty quickly that she won't get any help from the system. Everything's broken. And she doesn't have a car. Almost no one has a car. Mobile phones are in really short supply. Technology's failing. So she starts walking. And she spends a lot of time walking in the book, trying to find her daughter and following sort of myths and rumours about these children walking. Unsheltered proffers this whole new world order, in a sense, where everything is broken down after the effects of climate change. Is that a feat of your imagination? Or I guess from what you're saying, it's based on something much more real. Oh, I wish it was a feat of my imagination. <laughs> it's funny. I, I mean, I'm new to, to reviews and to critical reception or, and that kind of thing. But what I've heard so far is people call it dystopian and, and futuristic. I guess I wrote the first draft four years ago now. And it didn't feel like the future then. Uh, and the more time that went past between writing it and finding a publisher, the more I felt like the world was passing it by. It was sort of moving into the past tense. Uh, you know, Margaret Atwood talks about dystopia as, you know, being a place you wouldn't want to live. But she also has that approach where she just uses what's in the real world. She pretty much uses everything she uses in her books has happened to somebody somewhere, you know. And I feel like that about this book. I, you know, there are elements of it that might sound a bit you know, walled school communities and, and all of these things. But a version of all of it has happened to someone somewhere. It's just not necessarily happening to me or to us. You know, the dystopia is here, but it's not evenly distributed yet. And there's this whole world that you create, as you were saying, these, this, this whole new terminology, in a sense, mate yeah. camp, no-go zones, XB patrols, agency, sacrifice zones, and then also bringing together these ideas of refugees on the move, extreme weather, um, water shortages, uh, authoritarian governments. But all of this is expressed through Lee's journey across the country in search of her daughter, Matty. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, isn't there? Um, it, it felt overwhelming at times when I was writing it. It was like I was writing out my anxieties about everything in the world, you know. Um, but I think the impetus for me was always the mother-daughter story or the parent-child story. You know, it wasn't essential that it was a woman and a, and a girl. Lee's no ordinary mother either. She's not just a survivor. She's actually a survivalist and quite ruthless in her desire to stay alive and to find Matty. She's an expert forager, fabulous at harvesting water, snaring wildlife, and with this really highly sought-after skill of a patcher, a patcher of old tech. Uh, and she seems to have this extraordinary sensory capacity too. Is she some kind of superwoman of the future? Oh, <laughs> uh, look... It's funny, I remember when I, was, I wrote this book, I wrote the first draft in a, in a creative writing course in a workshop group. And so there were nine other writers, everyone writing a book. And it's a fantastic environment to write it in and you get really invested in everyone else's story. And I remember workshopping some section early on and someone um, came back to me and said, look, Lee seems to be incredibly good at so many things. You know, what isn't she good at? And... For me, she got good at things accidentally. It was just a function of her environment. I, I wrote the whole book in a state of unknowing, really. And I kept throwing things at her and then going, how am I going to get her out of this? You know, and if she hadn't had a lot of skills, she just wouldn't have survived. It wouldn't have worked. But I did think a lot about that question. I didn't want her to be superhuman. And she's got a lot of flaws. And I think for me, one of the things that was really important about her is that she's not, she's not really good with people. She's not a great judge of character. She's... For, for all kinds of reasons that, you know, some of which are revealed at different times in the book. 
she doesn't really trust people. She doesn't, she doesn't see a lot of hope in the future and she doesn't see a lot of hope in, in human beings. So she often makes quite bad calls. You know, there are times when people are really trying to help her and she's so suspicious that she doesn't trust them and she shoots herself in the foot, you know. So, yeah, she's definitely, she's definitely pretty heroic, but I didn't want her to be, um, I didn't want her to be perfect in any way. Yeah, I don't know, it doesn't sound like much of a fun book, but I had quite a lot of fun writing it. <laughs> it's a really tense book. And one of the things that brings the tension to it, for me anyway, was this idea of the landscape that she's traversing, which is sort of Australia. It's rather bleak and uncompromising and full of, as we've just discussed, some characters that can be trusted and some that can't be. And uh, I noticed that you, Claire, grew up in Western Australia. So I wondered whether your childhood experience had affected the way you see and describe the landscape in Unsheltered. That's a... That's a surprisingly hard question to answer because it sort of ties in for me to ideas about identity and belonging and place. And, you know, I was born here in Pornike in Wellington. My parents were from here. They, they were economic migrants to Australia. So my, my childhood and my teenage years were spent in first just outside Perth and then in Perth. And I, I guess I had, I don't know if it's fair to call it a rural childhood. We weren't farmers or anything, but we lived sort of out in the the foothills and there were farms around us and we there was a creek and we kind of had a pretty free-ranging childhood and it, that imprints you I think when I came to realize it was going to be an Australian book because I didn't go into it thinking that I thought it was going to be some sort of fictional Europe you know and I started writing it and it just came out really Australian and I the first thing I wrote was a scene the scene which is actually at the start of the book or a version of it where Maggie when she's five and her best friend are playing in the stormwater pipes but they don't know what rain is. They don't know what the pipes are for because they've never seen it. And that came straight out of my childhood. You know, my best friend and I used to play in the stormwater pipes and we used to dare each other to go round the bend. And, but round the bend was really dark and scary and we never quite did it. You know? And then our parents found out and they went crazy at us and they told us what would happen if it rained. And we were supposed to stop, but we didn't because then it was more exciting. You know? <laughs> and so I guess things like that, you know, they're not parallels, but they definitely affected me writing it. And then because I wrote it from here and I was a long way away and I was really conscious of whether I could write place in that place from a distance, I did a lot of immersive stuff. I spent a lot of time looking at photos of places I'd been, reading old diaries, you know, researching country that I'd spent time on that was really significant to me or that I had really strong pictures of. And then I kind of pieced a lot of those together. I want to also ask you about how you arrived at the title Unsheltered. And it really made me think about that title when I came across this phrase which read, sheltered isn't a choice, it's geography. When I was writing it, I was reading quite a lot of Hannah Arendt and there's many things she said that, that stuck with me. But there's one pretty famous thing she said, and I'm paraphrasing her, but she said, you know, refugees don't call themselves refugees. That's something other people call them. And... I'm, I was interested in that idea that if, if that's not the experience you're having, if you're not searching for refuge, it's really easy to make that a state that applies to other people who maybe are, are different from you in some way. And I think it's very easy to exploit that way of thinking and come up with all these other words. You know, the, the Australian government's been really good at that, or lots of Australian governments have been. So you get asylum seekers and you get boat people and you get queue jumpers and you know, that the idea of needing refuge becomes contestable and sort of untrustworthy somehow. And it's a really quick, easy 
passage from there to dehumanizing people. And I wanted to stay in as close as I could when I was writing it. And so I think in this world, which is really close for me to the world we're in now, it's not a choice anymore. You know, there are unsheltered people and there are sheltered people. And these sheltered people sort of live behind walls and we never, we never see them. And for the unsheltered people in the book, and that's an official term, but it's also the way these two groups of people imagine each other, I think. And for the people that we meet in the book, who are all unsheltered, they assume that it's better inside. Of course they do. They're trying to get in. It must be better. But I think there's a sort of open question through the book about how much better it really is in there. You know, how much walls can protect you from. And maybe it's a little bit better, but maybe it's not going to be for much longer, or maybe it's not much. So... I don't know, my agent actually came up with the title and she said that was how she felt when she read it. And that, that's what I wanted, you know, I wanted that feeling for me writing it and for people reading it, that we're all unsheltered or we all will be if we keep going the way we're going. Lots of authors don't really like their work to be put into genres. Yeah. But here we go. If you were forced to put unsheltered into a literary genre, where would you place it and how would you describe it? Yeah, genre is a mystery to me. I, I think a lot of writers don't, don't ever think about it until they have to try and sell the work, and I was definitely one of those people. Um, I made a list of things that has been called. <laughs> Everyone calls it dystopia. I don't necessarily agree, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling it. Climate fiction, literary fiction, speculative fiction, thriller. Thriller was the one that the publisher settled on. Psychological thriller. I love that. Well, I love thriller too. I was, I was delighted. The funniest thing is um, I've been asked just recently to contribute to a piece about up-and-coming crime writers, and that completely threw me. I would never have categorised it as that, but I thought, well, great. You know, that's tension, that's, that's pressure, that's urgency, and I, I love good crime writing. So, yeah, maybe, maybe thriller. Thriller is a good one for me. I definitely wanted to write a book that was exciting and, and had all that pressure and tension and urgency in it. As for what I, what I would say it was about. I really struggle with that stuff. I'm terrible at it. But I think what I started with was the question of what it means to be a parent when you've lost faith in the future. And that is really at the heart of the book for me. Um, yeah, I think it's a kind of a love story, but an ambivalent love story. Well, whatever you want to call it, it is a really fascinating book. So Claire, thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Kia ora. I've been talking to Claire Malata about her debut novel, Unsheltered. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.